Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm thrilled to be in the studio today with a, a local lady. Uh, her name is Marianne Mullaney, and Marianne is a litigator who is joining the Axelrod firm in Philadelphia and has been a very accomplished trial and appellate attorney uh, for about 25 years now. Thank you for coming in this morning, Mary. Thank you, Sue, for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. We, um, we're going to be talking about all things related to law and uh, your women's network and all kinds of good things. But as I always do, I'd love to start out to learn a little bit more about you and your years growing up in Oklahoma. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that and mom and dad coming from uh, New York. Yes. My parents were both born and raised in New York City. My mother came from the Throgs Neck section of the Bronx, and right. my father came from the Flushing section of Queens. And when they were first married, my father was in the Army. So he was stationed in Oklahoma at Fort Sill. Okay. So I, I was born there, and my younger sister, Carrie, was also born there. But we didn't stay there for very long. We were um, there about two years uh, before my parents moved back to New York. Okay. And at that point, we moved out onto Long Island to a town, a little hamlet called Syosset, which is in Oyster Bay. Hmm. and On the water? Uh, I think we're close, we're close to the North Shore. Okay. But we were only there until I was about seven, and then we moved down to Pennsylvania to a town called Berwyn, which is just 20 miles west of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And that's where I grew up, myself and my sisters. Okay. So I view myself as coming from Berwyn. Right. Okay. That was one of my questions. How old were you when you came to Pennsylvania? Yes. yes. And um, and where did you attend elementary then? New Eagle Elementary School. Okay. In the Stratford area. Okay. And you were the oldest of four girls. Yes. So I'm guessing you were a little bit in charge. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think of myself that way, and I'm sure my sisters will all agree that that's how I thought of myself. <laughs> They might dispute that I was always in charge because occasionally they asserted themselves too. But I think it's fair to say that, that I liked that role. I bet. Yes, particularly with respect to my two youngest sisters, Eleanor and Christine. But Carrie was just a year younger than me. Mm -hmm. And so there was a greater likelihood of the two of us fighting for who was in control. Right. Four girls. I mean, I know families of all girls, and there's always someone in charge. <laughs> <laughs> and then the rest trickles down from there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And are they local? Do you see them? My sister Carrie is local. Mm -hmm. She's out in Chester County. She's in Downingtown. And she is the mother of six children. Wow. I know. Wow. And she, she, in 2014? I know. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. And she gave, as far as I'm concerned, she gave me five nephews and one niece. So she did this all for me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no surprise there. And um, thankfully, she's nearby, so I get to see my sister Carrie and her kids a lot. Yeah, that's great. Uh, my sister Eleanor, who's the next after Carrie, is mm -hmm. in Tampa, Florida. Mm -hmm. 
Um, she's not married and doesn't have children. And Christine, my youngest sister, is in North Carolina, just outside of Raleigh, in a mm-hmm. town called Apex. And she gave me two nephews. Okay. <laughs> she gave you. <laughs> They're very generous, it. your sisters. They are very generous. <laughs> so I'm pretty pleased with that. Yeah. Um, of course, I want to ask about what, actually, I want to know when you decided as a young girl that you wanted to be an attorney. Well, this is not atypical, I, I don't think. It happened that my father was an attorney. So that had a huge influence on me. Yeah. He was a practicing lawyer first in New York when we lived in New York and then came down to a large law firm here in Philadelphia. And that was the reason the family relocated okay. from New York to mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. Uh, it was because my father became an attorney at a large firm in town called Wolf Block. It's since dissolved, but in the 70s, it was a very prominent real estate law firm. Mm-hmm. And he did that work for a number of years and retired a few years ago. But he was an attorney, so that had a huge okay. impact on me. His yeah. area, though, was real estate. And I think due to the influence of books, television, and movies, I was much more attracted to the courtroom. And so in high school, I was pretty confident that that's what I was going to be. I was going to be a lawyer, and I was going to do litigation. Wow. Okay. So I did know from a relatively early age. Mm-hmm. And But that's more, you know, it, kind of in, out there in the front as opposed to some of the, the law that is done where you're not as, um, you know, if you're not in the courtroom, right, it takes a lot of confidence in yourself to, um, to practice that kind. Where did that come from for you? That's a very good question. I would have to say it came from um, my parents, in particular my mother, mm-hmm. um, who were incredibly supportive. And my mother, when I was growing up, she had gone to nursing school, but she had not obtained her college degree. She had stopped pursuing that in order to marry and then raise a family. But in the mid-70s, she decided she was going to go back to school and finish her college degree, which she obtained, Mm -hmm. and then begin to work. And she went back um, in the 70s and got a degree in psychology and then joined the workforce. But throughout my childhood and into my adulthood, she was incredibly supportive. She was of the view that any one of her four girls could be anything they wanted to be. And she espoused that at every turn. And my father likes to say, because he was grossly outnumbered, because he had a <laughs> wife and four, four girls, right. he was always outnumbered. He likes to say he was just along for the ride. <laughs> he, he was the champion of saying, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear. He likes to say that, but he had a huge impact on me and on my sisters as well. And of course, he was the one who introduced me to the field of the law, to mm-hmm. that profession. Yeah, But I think their support led to the level of confidence that I had, that I could be a litigator and I could be a very good one. And I will also say, I think that one other way in which I was helped in terms of confidence was athletics. And I think you and I might have talked about this at some point Mm -hmm. over lunch, but one of the ways in which girls in my view, 
get a lot of self-confidence is accomplishing uh, terrific feats in athletics. Mm -hmm. And when I was young, I fell in love with gymnastics, just head over heels, just obsessed with it. <laughs> I would see the true, the true champions, Olga, Nadia, and say, that's fabulous. It is tremendous. And I would view them as flying through the air, acrobats that were just tremendously gifted and talented. And I said, that's what I want to do. I want to be a gymnast and I want to perform like that. It was so impressive. And I was young and impressionable. <laughs> I watched this on television and said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be a gymnast. And my family was terribly supportive. And I started to do gymnastics at a young age. I stopped after I broke my arm in a, in a gymnastics-related accident. Right. And I resumed again after about a year at the age of 11 or 12. And then I resumed with a passion. I said to my mother, this is what I want to do, and I want to devote a lot of time to it, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. Now, I, at, at, the, at this time, mm -hmm. was, was the, the idea of being a, a lawyer in the back of well, your you mind, know, or wasn't actually, there yet? I, I don't think it was formed yet when okay. I was in junior high school. Okay. I honestly remember thinking that I was going to be a lawyer definitively in high school, okay. but not when I was about 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. But with regard to gymnastics, I said, I want to do this. I think I can be good at it. And my mother and father said, sure. And my mother was very supportive because it meant the burden would be on her in a lot of regards because she would be responsible for getting me to the gym mm -hmm. after school and, and having to get me there and back after devoting four hours a day to, in the gym to doing gymnastics, mm -hmm. which is what I did throughout junior high school, after school. I went to the gym for four hours a day because this was, at that time, my ambition. Um, and it's a lot of hours. I mean, it was a gymnastics in general. It is, it is. Yeah. And, and it's even more um, rigorous today. Today, for young gymnasts who are very serious about gymnastics, they would probably scoff at the idea of only spending four hours right. a day in the gym. <laughs> what are you, a lightweight? <laughs> You're not committed enough. Right. Um, it's it's very different. That back then, this seemed appropriate in terms of the level of dedication. <laughs> it was and, enough. Yeah, it was considered enough. Right. Um, and so that's what I did throughout junior high school. And by the time I went to Valley Forge Junior High School mm -hmm. out in the Valley Forge area, and by the time I was a ninth grader, I was competing with Conestoga Senior High School on their women's gymnastics team. And the irony is that I received a varsity letter in gymnastics for a high school that I never ultimately attended. Because as, as it happens, I never went to Conestoga after graduating from Valley Forge Junior High School which at that time covered the seventh through ninth grades. Right, right. I instead went to Archbishop Carroll High School for Girls in Radnor mm -hmm. for 10th, 11th, and 12th grades. So I never actually went to Conestoga, but I loved competing on their team, and it was just a tremendous, tremendous experience for me. Um, but the truth is, by the time I got into high school, and by the time I was about 16, at that point, I realized, and it was, didn't come as a great shock, but at that point, I realized 
in order to be a truly uh, first-rate, top-notch gymnast, by the age of 16, if you're not there, it's not likely to happen, <laughs> not for women. And so I had the crushing realization that I was not going to be an Olympic champion. I'm still in therapy to this day over that. No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. But I realized it was not going to be. A future. Exactly. A future. And so at that point, I realized it was time to start devoting myself to academics. <laughs> that maybe I should, should switch my life goal. Right. Well, good so, for you for figuring mm-hmm. in. Figuring that out at Well, 16. I'm sure I had help from adults who probably yeah. said, Mary, yeah. and, you know, and I'm sure my father did, Mary, I'm not sure this is going to be your life's path. And of course, I probably said, what are you kidding me? Of course right. it is. This might not feed you in the future. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He did. I do remember him saying to me at one point, do you want to be a gymnastics coach? Because if that's your life goal, then we should continue down this path. Mm-hmm. If that's not what you want to do, you're going to have to consider other options. <laughs> and I said, hmm, you might be onto something. Maybe I should. <laughs> um, talk, talk to me a little bit about your years um, in high school and all-girls school and yes. how, why you feel that that is a good thing for, for young women to be. Oh, it's absolutely a, a fantastic thing in a lot of respects because the pressure that girls feel at, at the high school age is, uh, is enormous, enormous. And while I I should express that when I was at Archbishop Carroll, it was all girls, but it was all girls on one side of the school. So in the interest of disclosure, let me tell you that that we were joined by Archbishop Carroll High School for boys through the cafeteria and library and a couple of other facilities in the middle of this school. Interestingly, yes. It's, it became I bet co-ed. a lot went on there. <laughs> as the as rumor has it, a lot did, and that's all I'm going to say. But the <laughs> the it, the school ultimately did become co-ed. But I but to answer your question, because it's an excellent one, and I think it's very important. Uh, it was a great experience for me because I never felt the pressure not to raise my hand, not to do extremely well in classes, not to be assertive in class discussions. Uh, but I don't know that that would have happened if I had attended a co-ed school mm-hmm. because that pressure is very real. Yeah. And we see it from studies that are done to this very day that girls, starting I think as early as 10, 11, and 12, stop reaching for leadership positions, stop asserting themselves in class. And it's due to a lot of cultural pressures and influences um, that discourage them from reaching for these sorts of goals. Yeah. And I didn't feel that pressure um, in high school. In fact, there was a pressure, I think, that came primarily from within to be the very best I, I could be in terms of academic performance and yeah. success. Yeah. I want to uh, talk a little mm-hmm. bit more about sure. that after the break. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be back with Marianne Mullaney, uh, a litigator joining the Axelrod firm here in Philadelphia. We'll be right back. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks, and some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. 
that's where the mutual fund store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face to face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your mutual fund store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. Hello? Hi, Kelly. It's Sue. Are you and Joe going to the kids' game after school today? No, we are stuck in traffic again on our way to the hospital for Joe's IVIG infusion. As usual, we will be at the hospital all day and won't be home in time. This is really becoming a problem with our work and family commitments. Hey, my friend's son receives his infusions at home with Walgreens. You know they are not just a retail pharmacy. Walgreens has a national home infusion program. He used to miss school, but now the Walgreens nurses see him at home after school. Wow! Infusions in the comfort of our own home? Yes! Walgreens expert infusion nurses and pharmacists are available 24-7 to provide safe, one-on-one -on -one clinical support around your schedule. Talk to your doctor and call Walgreens Infusion Services at 877-974-4844 or go to womentowatch.net for complete details. We will, if we ever get out of this traffic, hearty har har. We can't wait to have these infusions at home with Walgreens. Thanks. Be well. Have you ever wondered about the magic of Paris? Traveled there before? You haven't experienced Paris until you've traveled with us. I'm Chloe Johnson, the owner of CJ Tours. I became hooked on the mystique of all things Parisian after just one visit to the city of light. CJ Tours, a travel, fashion, and product company, provides an experience unlike any other when it comes to exploring the hidden gems of Paris. We connect you with boutiques off the beaten path. We provide the opportunity to go behind the scenes with some of the most celebrated designers Paris has to offer. You can even purchase one-of-a-kind French pieces as mementos of your trip, or ask us to source that special piece just for you. CJ Tours and our unique products are designed to provide that Parisian je ne sais quoi and allow you to experience Paris like never before. To learn more, contact me at Chloe Johnston at cjshoppingtours.com or simply visit chloejohnston.com for more information. Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need. 
When you are shopping, do you chuckle at the one-size-fits-all tags? Well, Wealth Management should not take a one-size-fits-all approach either. Companies offer different products and services for women, and they should. All women are different. Your plan should be as unique and personal as you are. So why are you still following your one-size-fits-all financial advisor? Financial advisor Liz Barker of RBC Wealth Management understands this. Her area of expertise is women in transition and being retirement ready. Call Liz Barker, financial advisor at RBC Wealth Management at 484-530-2806. Again, that number is 484-530-2806 or visit her online at www.lizbarker.com to schedule your complimentary custom wealth management plan today. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch here on WWDB. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm thrilled to be in the studio today with Marianne Mullaney. Uh, Marianne is an attorney here in Philadelphia who's going to be joining the Axelrod firm uh, in just a few short weeks. Um, she she is currently with Blank Rome, a very large firm that she will be leaving. So we'll talk about what what you feel the, uh, the the change is going to be for you. That's going to be a dramatic change. Uh, right before the break, we were talking about the advantages to being in an all-girls high school. Um, and, I, and I do think there are some. And um, why don't you finish your thought about um, why you feel that young girls in that type of environment don't have the fear to raise their hand and, as Sheryl Sandberg says, lean in and really speak up? I think there is a significant amount of pressure that girls feel, and I think the studies have borne this out, and in addition to the pressure not to be viewed as uh, trying to be the leader of a class or the most intelligent or the most accomplished, uh, in trying to avoid being labeled as a know-it-all or to avoid any type of negative label, I think girls uh, withdraw in a number of respects. Um, they stop reaching for leadership positions. They stop trying to be the best they can possibly be academically because of a fear of a backlash. This is what I, I believe, and I think there are some studies that have shown that at the very least, girls stop Stop striving for leadership roles, that that certainly is an impact. And I think that in a co-ed setting, a lot of that type of pressure, cultural pressure, societal pressure, is alleviated. And instead, the competition is among girls themselves. So there's no concern about how a girl might appear to a boy she might be interested in if she is the one who has the highest grade on a test or is the one who is elected president of the class. These sorts of issues mm -hmm. fall by the wayside. Right. So there are some advantages uh, from my perspective, and I certainly had a very productive and healthy high school experience mm -hmm. and didn't confront any of these sorts of issues because I wasn't in a co-ed setting. Yeah, yeah. 
we could probably talk a whole show about the advantages of really an all-girls mm-hmm. academic environment, mm-hmm. but um, I think the bottom line is that there's just less distraction. That's and true, And it too. allows the girls to really just kind of be themselves and, right. you know. So um, then you went on to Notre Dame. I did. Uh, and Villanova Law School. I did. And um, talk about what types of things you were involved in there um, outside of your academics. In college which was a tremendous, tremendous experience. And I went from an all-girls high school to the almost the reverse because at the time, Notre Dame, when I went there, had been co-ed for only about 10 years and about a third or less of the student body were women. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a tremendous experience uh, academically, socially. It was just, and a lot of people say this about their college days, I'm no exception. It was the best four years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> without without question. Um, and I formed fabulous friendships with women that I enjoy to this day. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, through social media, we remain connected to this day. We email regularly. And we talk about a lot of gender-related issues, right. particularly those of us that went into um, the working world and stayed in the working world. Um, we commiserate over an awful lot of issues. Mm-hmm. It's very fair to say. And even those who didn't join the workforce or left the workforce relatively early, say after only about five or seven years to then raise a family, they're enormously supportive of the challenges that the rest of us in our group from Notre Dame face. And I was thrilled to see that type of support because truthfully, I was worried about expressing some of these issues to my friends at Notre Dame who were not still in the workforce Mm -hmm. because I didn't know if they could relate Because what happens to women when they first join the workforce, at least this is my view, in my opinion, that they don't realize the the gender bias that exists. They think it's just like school, that all you have to do is perform exceptionally well and you'll be treated fairly. And that's just not how it works in the real world. It just isn't. Um, But when you're first in the workforce, you don't realize these things, I think, and again, in my opinion, And you think you're doing well and being paid fairly and advancing appropriately. So if you stop participating in the workforce, say after five or seven years, and your experience up until that point has been throughout high school and college, you had a great deal of academic success. And then once you were in the workforce, you thought you were treated really well as a professional, whether it was an accountant, a lawyer, what have you. Um, But you thought you were treated really well and treated fairly um, in your line of work, whatever it might have been, engineering, whatever it might have been. Um, and then you stop uh, participating in the workforce as a full-time employee in that profession to raise a family. I was afraid that those of my friends who fell into that category wouldn't understand the challenges that the rest of us faced as we continued to move forward in our respective professions. Mm-hmm. And I was pleasantly surprised Uh, Much to my delight, about five or seven years ago, when I first started talking about the challenges that women who continue to fight the good fight in their chosen fields uh, tend to face. I was very surprised to get the level of support from the the ones I thought were going to be the most critical and the most um, skeptical. Um, I thought they they were not going to understand what I was trying to convey Mm -hmm. because it hadn't it wouldn't resonate with them because it hadn't been their experience. Right. And I was wrong. 
I was very, very happy to see that they were receptive to the things that I was telling. And then other members of our group started to talk about. And not only were they very receptive, they were very supportive. And it may be because they have had sisters who stayed in their respective professions and they were hearing things from their sisters or from their other friends Mm -hmm. who stayed in the workforce full time and began to discuss these challenges or they started to read more about them in the media. But I was always worried that those were the ones I was going to have the most trouble persuading and getting to understand my side of the my side of the equation, my, yeah. what my experience was and what I thought was the experience of a lot of women who got to the mid-career uh, level. Yeah, that's very interesting to me because, again, yes, I would imagine that you're thinking that the women that didn't stay with it, mm-hmm. um, because women do stop and mm-hmm. start to have families, mm-hmm. um, and at the time they were working, had a good experience, right. that they would think that you're kind of creating something or talking about something that really doesn't exist. And the fact right. that they were open to to want to know more probably right. in order to help change that. Right. Right. I thought that because these were all very highly accomplished women mm-hmm. that I uh, remain friends with to this day from Notre Dame in their respective fields. Very well educated, went on to do fabulous things in terms of graduate school and what have you. And uh, what I thought they would think is... Well, it must be Mary. It must be something right. that she's done wrong. And because if it's not if it's not consistent with your own experience, then you you might think that as your first logical conclusion. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't that doesn't resonate with to me. me. It didn't sure. happen to Everybody me. It must be that. something that Mary did wrong. Mm-hmm. But um that isn't the case because we have so much in terms of studies and um benchmarking and the like that shows that these issues about receiving lower compensation, about being underrepresented in positions of management and authority, and about being excluded from the very top of the ladder, that these things are not, um, they're not just about one person's experience, not just about the experience of Mary Mullaney. And instead, that a lot of professional women have these experiences and the the issues are cultural. And unfortunately, they're not just limited to certain professions. I think it's in many, many professions. Mm-hmm. So the upshot was I was very happy to see the level of support that I received from my friends from Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And I ultimately, with Cheryl Oxerod, who is a colleague who I've worked with at Blank Rome, who has her own firm. I ultimately, with her, started a group called the Fearless Women Network, Mm -hmm. um, particularly to focus on the issues confronting women in the legal profession. Because in the legal profession, given the stunning number of top-notch, first-rate talent that's graduated from law schools in the past three or four decades, and that talent is women. There's just a wonderful wealth of first-rate practitioners who are women lawyers, just tremendous. Given the numbers, it didn't make sense at all, as far as I was concerned, to see so very few heads of law firms, appellate court judges, law school deans, 
as women. And so that suggested to me that there was a monumental problem. And it's a problem that I'm not the first to identify. In fact, this is a phenomenon that's been studied ad nauseum uh, for years and years and years. And the studies support the idea that at the very least there is unconscious bias. And that's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and the unconscious bias is held by not just men, uh, but it's also held by women because we're exposed to the very same cultural influences. Growing up, if you were asked to think about a surgeon, asked to think about a law school dean, asked to think about a professor, asked to think about a trial lawyer, asked to think about a judge, the image that would come into your mind is that of a tall white male. That's who we view as a leader in our culture and in our society. And so if that's an unconscious bias, if that's implanted in the way in which we view the world, when we find somebody who fits that image, a tall white male, that is the person that gets that role. You don't see a woman, you don't see a person of color, and interestingly, you also very rarely see someone who's short. So in any, in any case, we started to see all of these studies that were done on bias um, because we were looking for an explanation as to why it was with so many tremendous first-rate practitioners in, in the legal profession that were women with so many. The numbers were incredible. The numbers of women graduating from law school, I think even in one year in the 90s, we were more than 50%. I wanted to ask, yes. what is the percentage? Do, it's very you, close. Yeah. It's actually, I think it hovers around 40%. Has it continually increased over it the years? It did increase. It did increase in the 90s, and at least one year in the 90s, it was over 50% that the graduates of law school were women. Mm-hmm. But um, that number has declined. I think today it's somewhere around 45 or 43%. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, that's a different issue as to why it is that fewer women are going to law school. But, but what I was looking at were why is it that these women who have tremendous track records, myself included, in terms of trial successes and appellate successes, why is it that we're not getting to the top of the profession? Why is that not happening? Um, and so we started to look and see that there were lots of studies, tremendous studies about the... Uh, issue of gender bias, and not just in our field. Uh, So when a number of lawyers, we would get together regularly to talk about our experiences, and these were women who were in-house, which is in the legal departments of corporations. These are women in private practice, which are women lawyers in law firms, Mm -hmm. and women in government. When we would get together to talk about all sorts of issues, what was going on in our personal lives and what was going on at work, we would invariably talk about the lack of progress, the stagnation, frankly, and the frustration that we felt that these were a lot of high achievers who were expecting and had been taught from very early age, certainly in my experience, that I could be whatever I wanted to be and that it was possible. And that if you worked very hard and you met your goals and you performed at a very high level, that these rewards would follow. Mm-hmm. And it, they certainly were to a point, but then they stopped. And in addition, we learned uh, that our efforts were not being valued at the same level that those efforts, similar efforts by 
the those in the dominant, those in the majority, um, were being valued at. So not only were we not achieving the highest levels in terms of the most influential and powerful positions, we were also not being paid at the same level as those of our colleagues who were performing at uh, similar um, rates or levels. It, so these these issues became incredibly important to all of us. And that is what led ultimately to the formation of um, the Fearless Women Network. Okay. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that after the break. We're going to take one more break, and we'll be back in the studio with Marianne Mullaney. Hello? Hi, Kelly. It's Sue. Are you and Joe going to the kids' game after school today? No, we are stuck in traffic again on our way to the hospital for Joe's IVIG infusion. As usual, we will be at the hospital all day and won't be home in time. This is really becoming a problem with our work and family commitments. Hey, my friend's son receives his infusions at home with Walgreens. You know they are not just a retail pharmacy. Walgreens has a national home infusion program. He used to miss school, but now the Walgreens nurses see him at home after school. Wow, infusions in the comfort of our own home? Yes. Walgreens expert infusion nurses and pharmacists are available 24-7 to provide safe, one-on-one clinical support around your schedule. Talk to your doctor and call Walgreens Infusion Services at 877-974-4844 or go to womentowatch.net for complete details. We will, if we ever get out of this traffic, hearty har har. We can't wait to have these infusions at home with Walgreens. Thanks. Be well. Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks, and some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the mutual fund store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your mutual fund store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. Have you ever wondered about the magic of Paris? Traveled there before? 
you haven't experienced Paris until you've traveled with us. I'm Chloe Johnson, the owner of CJ Tours. I became hooked on the mystique of all things Parisian after just one visit to the city of light. CJ Tours, a travel, fashion, and product company, provides an experience unlike any other when it comes to exploring the hidden gems of Paris. We connect you with boutiques off the beaten path. We provide the opportunity to go behind the scenes with some of the most celebrated designers Paris has to offer. You can even purchase one-of-a-kind French pieces as mementos of your trip, or ask us to source that special piece just for you. CJ Tours and our unique products are designed to provide that Parisian je ne sais quoi and allow you to experience Paris like never before. To learn more, contact me at Chloe Johnston at cjshoppingtours.com or simply visit chloejohnston.com for more information. When you are shopping, do you chuckle at the one-size-fits-all tags? Well, Wealth Management should not take a one-size-fits-all approach either. Companies offer different products and services for women, and they should. All women are different. Your plan should be as unique and personal as you are. So why are you still following your one-size-fits-all financial advisor? Financial advisor Liz Barker of RBC Wealth Management understands this. Her area of expertise is women in transition and being retirement ready. Call Liz Barker, financial advisor at RBC Wealth Management at 484-530-2806. Again, that number is 484-530-2806. Or visit her online at www.lizbarker.com to schedule your complimentary custom wealth management plan today. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC. Member NYSE, FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch. I'm in the studio today with Marianne Mullaney. Uh, Marianne is going to be shortly joining the Axelrod firm here in Philadelphia. Um, she has been a trial and appellate lawyer for over 25 years. Um, a topic that I think is very important that we were leading up to in, in the second half of the show um, was this idea that there is um, an unequal, um, I guess, pay scale out there, uh, not just in the legal profession, but in in professions in general, where women are doing the same uh, type of work, amount of work, and not receiving uh, equal pay. So I wanted uh, Marianne to speak to why it, some of the proof, actually, I, I should say, why there's some studies out there that show, um, unless you have a diverse board, company, um, law firm, that financially you're you're going to suffer, and she has some proof of that. Sure, we have, as I said, with regard to the Fearless Women Network, we've been very interested in the gender disparities, and the reasons for them, and the studies about them for a number of years. And we're certainly not alone. There are a lot of women in various fields very interested in this, and very interested in seeing it rectified because. At the very least, women should be paid equally for work that they do when their male colleagues are being paid at a higher level. Just is grossly unfair, just on its face. But we know that there's unequal pay in the legal profession. It's been studied for decades. In fact, there's a an article written that's in a law review, 8 Florida International University Law Review, 515 that came out last year called Navigating the Gap, Reflections on 20 Years Researching Gender Disparities in the Legal Profession. 
There's also one from Joan Williams, who's a tremendous advocate for women in the legal profession. She wrote an article that had a huge impact on me a number of years ago called, number of years ago called New Millennium, Same Glass Ceiling, The Impact of Law Firm Compensation Systems on Women. And in addition, we have had a number of organizations, including the American Bar Association, at the forefront of this. Their committee on women in the profession and, and their task force on gender equity have been doing tremendous, tremendous work, as has a, an organization called Catalyst. We've also seen some tremendous, tremendously in, influential studies from Keshet Consulting. Um, but the studies show that the... Unequal compensation is a very real issue, and it has been an issue for decades. And what is of concern is whether it is being reduced, this wage gap, which we know is evident in women's careers. Very early on, for example, when they first come out of law school, within the first three years or so, there's about a 5% on average disparity. And then seven years out from law school, that grows to about 13%. And then as women continue in the profession, the gap actually gets incredibly wide. Uh, there was a study done in 2012 from Major Lindsay in Africa, which did a survey of partners at law firms. It drew about 2,200 responses from partners of the largest law firms, not just domestically, but globally. And at partners... At large law firms, the average compensation for men is 47% higher than the average compensation for women. There's also a benchmarking study done of women in-house, which is in the legal departments of corporations. In 2013, there was a benchmarking study done by Corporate Counsel and ALM Legal Intelligence, and they looked at over 4,800 attorneys and found that among lawyers holding the highest positions in-house, that is, chief legal officer or general counsel, that the average compensation, the average cash compensation for men was 26% higher than the average co cash compensation for women. So we've seen these studies, and they, they tell us what we've, what we've experienced and learned anecdotally. Um, but these studies have confirmed it. And in, in, in addition, the National Association of Women Lawyers, NAL, has done tremendous work in this area too. And they come out with an annual report on the progress of women in the profession. And the most recent report, which came out earlier this year in February, is, incre is incredibly disconcerting. Uh, I read it and became worried that the situation was actually not improving. It was deteriorating because one of the things that gave us terrible cause for concern was up until... The year 2013, a lot of the firms asked to participate, did participate, and gave information about compensation and about gender, and also about equity partnership and non-equity partnership. But in 2013, 33 firms of the largest 200 firms in America declined to participate for the first time, even though they had participated as recently as 2012. Um, they wouldn't report data about compensation for their men and women lawyers. And that refusal, although it doesn't tell me definitively the reasons for the refusal, it certainly suggests to me that the reason they refuse is that at the very least, they're embarrassed by what the data would show. 
for 2013. That suggests to me that the situation is not improving and, in fact, could be deteriorating. So the situation in the legal profession must change, and that's what's led to our formation of the Fearless Women Network. And our view is we must be part of that change. We must force those in positions of privilege to recognize the scale and scope of the problem and to address it. And and part of our frustration is that often we talk to women, but we're preaching to the choir. They read these studies just as <laughs> easily and as well as Cheryl and I do. Um, they know this information. And my view is the women are not the problem. Those in positions of power and influence those are the ones that we have to educate. Those are the ones who have to say, we have an obligation to change this system because it isn't fair and it isn't right. And if the moral imperative won't force that change, and it hasn't up until this point, the business case will. And you asked about the studies that go to the profitability of diversity. Mm -hmm. Because once you have diverse perspectives, once you have people of color people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, people who've had different experiences such that they have different perspectives, different ideas, different theories. Once you bring a group of people together that has these differences, the group will produce better ideas, will produce uh, reactions to opportunities and responses to threats in a much better way than those who were homogenous and would engage in groupthink. And there's a number of studies that are showing this to be true, including um, some that my friend Cheryl Axelrod has written about, but she's not alone in this. The Anita Borg Institute has specifically written about all of these um, benefits, economic benefits, and um, improved, improved economic performance, improved financial performance of many companies that recognize and value diversity, and not just in talk, but in practice, mm -hmm. actually have uh, diversity as an initiative and as a fact. And they have, this, they have performed the studies that have shown that it leads to um, much improved financial performance. So there's also this business case mm -hmm. for diversity. And Cheryl Axelrod has written on it. And as I say, the Anita Borg Institute has written on it. Um, they're not alone in this. And it's, it's frankly not a secret. The word is out that diversity improves performance. But it's getting those who benefited from the existing system to change their mindset and say, we're going to embrace this because it's, A, the right thing to do, but also it's going to improve our uh, businesses economic and financial performance. Mm -hmm. So that's the real, that's the real trick. That's the real objective to get those in positions of power and influence to change their mindset and to start to embrace these ideas. And interestingly, at least from my perspective, the men that get it and understand this the greatest and actually take action are the ones who have experienced discrimination themselves. That's my view, that those are the ones who understand what it's like. Um, those who have been in a non-dominant race, 
So if they're a person of color in this country, or those who were abroad for an assignment for an extended period of time, um, if it was a white male on assignment, let's just say, for example, in Asia for three years, where then he was not in the majority, he was in the minority. Um, but those who have experienced being in the minority as opposed to the majority, those are the men, in my view, that understand this message the best. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's our hope and it's our goal to educate um, all men as to this and as to their role in bringing about this change because they can't have the luxury, as far as I'm concerned, of ignoring this issue and pretending it doesn't exist um, and pretending that they don't have an obligation to change it. Um, They have that obligation if they run companies because they have the obligation to their shareholders um, to to perform in the uh, most economically beneficial way. Mm -hmm. Um, And in addition, in the legal profession, they have this obligation to their partners if if they're in private practice. But the idea of unconscious bias isn't isn't new. Um, and in fact, one of the most compelling summaries of it and recitations of what this is, because again, men and women suffer from this because they're exposed to cultural stereotypes throughout the course of their lives. But one of the most telling examples that I think speaks to men so that men can understand this this issue better is one that was written in the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. And in his book, he talks about the fact that he polled half of the companies on the Fortune 500 list. So those are the largest companies in the United States, asking each about its CEO. And so he looked at about half of these companies and asked questions about the CEO and learned that they were overwhelmingly white men, which didn't come as a surprise. But what might have come as as a surprise was that they were virtually all tall. And in his sample, the average CEO was just a shade under six feet. But the average American male is only five foot nine. So the average CEO had about three inches on his own sex, on males in this country. But more tellingly, he said, in the U.S. population, only 14.5% of the men are six feet tall or taller. Yet, under um, the analysis of the Fortune 500 company's CEOs, that number that were were six feet or taller was 58%. Even more interestingly, he looked at CEOs that were six foot two or taller. And in his sample, 30% of the CEOs were six feet two or taller. But in the American population in general, only 3.9% of men are that tall. So there's a monumental disparity. How is it that tall white men in this country have a lock on strategy, have a lock on vision, have a lock on communication, have a lock on persuasion, have a lock on execution, have a lock on financial understanding and operational understanding. They don't. It's, it's absurd on its face. But uh, for some reason, and this is 
this is Malcolm's comment. Uh, And this is a direct quote. Have you ever wondered why so many mediocrities find their way into positions of power, sorry, into positions of authority in companies and organizations? Well, it's because we have an idea in our heads of what a leader is supposed to look like. And once, once that image is met, the stereotype is so powerful that when somebody has fit that bill, we're blind to all of the other considerations and that person gets the top role. Well, that's not acceptable. They don't have a lock on all of these characteristics and traits that we would want in our leadership. Mm-hmm. And the same is true for race and the same is true for gender. And this is why um, we have to fight to make people aware of what happens through unconscious bias, that we simply, uh, without realizing it, without thinking about it consciously, we make decisions that are far from rational and we don't necessarily give the right job to the right person. And that's got to change. Uh, And when that change happens, when we recognize our unconscious biases, when that change happens, we'll be more receptive to the idea of advancing women, deserving women who have the right characteristics and traits and have had the right experiences and have performed incredibly well. We'll let them get to the top of their profession. But we've got to get people to acknowledge that the bias exists. Very interesting, very interesting topic, um, Marianne. And we we only have a moment left. So for the listeners, if they want to get in touch with you um, or the Axelrod firm, what's the best contact information for you? For me, right now, since I'm not at that firm yet, uh, it's probably mmalaney at fearlesswomennetwork.org. Okay. That's probably the best way to reach me. Terrific. And people can get more information on that site anyway about all the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much for coming in today. Uh, Great topic. Very interesting. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB AM Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, feel free to reach out at womentowatch.net. And that's women, the number two, watch.net. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you.